From the book of Philippians, the epistle of Paul to the Philippians, chapter 1. I'm reading verse 20. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even as now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I want to read a page from uh, Campola's new book called, entitled, Everything You've Ever Heard is Wrong. Okay. Uh, Listen to this. If we would stop and imagine our own dying in advance, reflecting upon what we will deem important to us then, we could learn a great deal about what should be important to us now. If we could posture ourselves at the end of life right now, and in our imaginations reflect back on things, we would undoubtedly make judgments that it would be best for us to make here in the present As strange as it sounds, we must learn to look on the positive side of dying. We need to consider how it is only by facing the oncoming reality of death that we can take stock of our lives and ask the most important questions we will ever ask about ourselves. Those people who have talked to me about life when they themselves were near death have always told me that they wished they had gained the perspective on life which is created by being near death much earlier. They claim that if this had occurred, their lives would have been very different. It was better when we used to have hourglasses to keep the time. Clocks with their revolving hands create the illusion that time goes on forever. Hourglasses remind us that time is running out and that there are more important questions that should be answered before it is too late. Let me tell you about Mel. He's a young man in his early 20s who found out he had lymphatic cancer and six months to live. So devastated by the diagnosis and the prognosis, He went to New York City to see if he could find another opinion or perhaps some treatment if that diagnosis was correct. When he got to New York City, he he found that indeed he was dying of cancer. He learned that there was a class at Union Theological Seminary that was taught to those people who worked with people who are dying. And he thinks to himself, well, since I'm dying, what better class could I take? And so he went to enroll in Union Theological Seminary on this class taught by people who worked with dying. And he found out that there was a class being taught by the controversial theologian by the name of Daniel Berrigan on what he thought would be a kind of an esoteric study of the book of Revelation. So he, he, he signed up for that class. 
And he went to class the first day to his Revelation class, not knowing that Daniel Berrigan often began his classes with long pauses of meditation. Nobody said a word. And so he went in and he sat down and the class got together and Daniel Berrigan came in and sat down and just sat there. And there was this long silence. And he began to... He began to be very uncomfortable in the silence, and he thought, well, they know that I'm an outsider, and they're trying to, you know, get me to leave, and so I'm not going to leave. You know, when you're dying, you have a little more courage, so he, he just sat there. And he said, all of a sudden, uh, Berrigan's eyes fixed on him and stared at him, and he just withered under this glare of Daniel Berrigan. And finally, Daniel Berrigan said, directed to Mel, What's the matter? And he said, here I am, this pale man, emaciated and dying. He said, I thought he was asking, you know, what's the problem here? What's the problem with you? And he said, I started to answer something like, well, it's none of your business. You know, it's an arrogant question. But he said, when you're, you know, dying, you know, that seems pretty useless and truthless. He said, so I looked right back at him and said, I'm dying. I'm dying of cancer. And he said, well, a moment of hesitation in Berrigan's voice. There weren't any convulsions of pity and sorrow. He looked right back at me and said, man, that must be exciting. Now, what happens when a person confronts the power of death present in the life of a young person? You and I would probably gulp, or we might come up with some kind of uh, pious statements like, well, I'll be praying for you. Most of us would flee but that statement, that, that statement by Berrigan fell like a bolt of lightning into Mel's life. And he said, I found myself answering like this. Yes, it is very exciting. For it's the first time I've ever had to confront death and answer the questions that death, ans- that death asks. Now, I have a feeling this morning that most of us would not think facing death is that exciting. I wouldn't put it on my list of top five things I want to do, you know, as an exciting thing. But I want us to do an exciting exercise this morning. I want us to imagine our own dying. And I want us as best we can to posture ourselves at that point at the end and begin to look back to see if the same things that are valuable or would be valuable to us then would still should be or should be as valuable to us today. I want us to kind of begin at the end and see if we would make some changes. Now some of you will find that very difficult because you're young and you feel invincible. But for some of us this morning, it's not that difficult because death races toward us in full gallop. This is exactly what this man who wrote this text was doing. He looked down the red raw throat of death. It wasn't the first time. He had confronted death on several occasions. In fact, there are some who believe that actually one time he did die as they stoned him to death. And as he looked back from that perspective, he gained this marvelous perspective on dying. If you read this rest of this chapter, there's this perspective there. He said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I have this great desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He gained this marvelous perspective on death, but he even gained a more marvelous perspective on life as he looked at it from the end and looked back. I have a feeling this morning 
that if you and I could go through this exercise in an honest way, it would impact two areas of our life. First of all, it would impact our attitude. This was his attitude. That Jesus Christ might be exalted in my body. And that was his all-absorbing purpose. That was his all-consuming obsession. That Jesus Christ would be exalted in his body. Now that term, in his body, is a term that, rem- that, that means in his daily life, it means what he was and what he said. I want everything I do to exalt Jesus Christ, what I eat and what I speak, what, how I walk and how I talk, how I listen, how I love, how I live. I want everything to exalt Jesus. Notice that he didn't say that he would be exalted in my preaching. And he was. For Paul said to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him. He didn't say that he would be exalted in my writings, and he was. For if you read the epistles of the Apostle Paul, they literally throb with Jesus Christ. What he said was that he would be exalted in my daily life. Because he wanted us to understand that what he's talking about is not something that relates only to preachers or to scripture writers, but to people like you and me. He's writing to folks like us, and he's saying, this should be the all-consuming passion of your life, that Jesus Christ might be exalted. That word exalted means to make great or to be made conspicuous. Do you like to be conspicuous? No, you don't. This is no. You don't like to be conspicuous? No. Did you read about, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm sure that some of you have been invited to um, attend some kind of a dress-up affair and you thought it was casual, and so you went in your best T-shirt, felt kind of conspicuous, didn't you? Did you hear about the coach, the farmer coach, high school coach of, of Troy Aikman? Did y'all read that or hear about it on TV? They went down to the Super Bowl, he and his wife, and they just kind of hung around trying to find tickets. And they heard that if you would go to the will call, occasionally somebody would not show up that had tickets and you might get to buy them. So his wife went to the will call window ten times saying, are there any tickets? And finally, after the game started, they, the guy said, you guys have been here all day wanting tickets. He said, I've got a couple of tickets, I'll sell you. And they were at face value, $250, when most of them were going for 1000 bucks a ticket. And so they, they, they paid their tickets and they went in and they passed through five security clearances and wound up in Jerry Jones' luxury box. <laughs> now, now, what a deal. And, and here's this coach and his wife in their sweats. <laughs> they bought down at the Foot Locker. And they go in this luxury box of Jerry Jones where they wear these, you know, they got only $5,000 suits and these clothes they'd bought at Neiman Marcus or Tiffany's. You think they weren't a little conspicuous? In fact, Ms. Jones said, Excuse me? <laughs> are, are you all out of place? And she, Well, these are our tickets, and we bought them down there, and yeah, these are your tickets. But you know, the bottom line is, they kicked them out. They were a little bit too conspicuous. I mean, really, in there. Nobody likes to be conspicuous. If you've raised a teenage daughter, you've been, the, I don't want to be through, you've been through this I don't want to be conspicuous routine. Starts about 5 o'clock on Saturday. 
Michelle, what are you wearing? Well, I'm wearing jeans. Okay, that's what I'll wear. Leslie calls or Rebecca calls. About 30 minutes later, the phone rings again, and we switch from jeans to slacks and sweater. Okay, get all dressed, everything's fine. About 15 minutes later, phone rings, now it's a dress. I mean, one day I said, just wear something for Pete's sake. <laughs> Get ready. She said, well, Daddy, I don't want to be the only one there in jeans. I said, well, who decides? <laughs> I mean, who does? I, I'm thinking, let, let me decide. I, I'll, be the, I'll be the person in Durant that decides what you wear on Saturday night. I said, Get on a dress and go for Pete's sake. She didn't want to be conspicuous. Let me ask you a question. What's the most conspicuous thing about your life? I mean, when you walk out of a group of people and they've observed you, what do they say about you? I mean, what is the most conspicuous thing about you? Jesus? The Apostle Paul said, I want my body to be a theater, my life to be a theater in which the glory of God is displayed. He said, I want my life to be a telescope. You know what a telescope is, don't you? It's that which takes something that seems very distant and brings it closer and closer. I want my life to be such that when people are in my presence, they'll feel and sense. For the average man on the street, you ask him about Jesus, he'll tell you about some figure way off in the history or way off in the sky somewhere. He says, I want my life to be a microscope. You know what that is, don't you? It's that which you, you put something under a microscope and that which looks so small and insignificant looks larger and larger. You ask the average man on the street what he thinks about Jesus. He'll, think about, he'll tell you something about somebody that's small and insignificant. What the Apostle Paul was saying is this, I want when people to look at my life, when they look at my life, I want them to see the greatness, the, this huge Jesus that's sufficient for anything. When they walk away from me, I want them to say, I know Jesus Christ can make a difference, for I've seen the difference He's made in His life. Now that's the all-consuming, all-absorbing purpose. Now there are other purposes in a person's life, I know that. I'm not here to tell you that's the only purpose. But I am here to tell you that, where, that whatever your all-absorbing purpose is, that absorbing purpose, all-absorbing purpose, will bend every circumstance to serve it that all-absorbing purpose will make every circumstance serve that purpose. For example, if your all-absorbing purpose is power popularity, you'll use every circumstance to serve that purpose. If your all-absorbing purpose is to make money, you'll use every circumstance as a way to make a buck. If your all-absorbing purpose is an education, then you will let nothing defeat that purpose. You will make every circumstance serve it. Watch this very carefully. If Jesus Christ being exalted in your life is not your all-absorbing purpose, you are at the mercy of every circumstance. If, if Jesus... is not the all-absorbing purpose of your life. Now, not the Apostle Paul. He dictated circumstances. So that when he confronted a circumstance that was bad, he made that circumstance serve the purpose 
of exalting Jesus. You go to prison? What do you do in prison? I mean, that's a pretty terrible experience. He used that prison experience to exalt Jesus. So he and Silas one day got put in prison. And at midnight, by the way, what are you going to be doing at your midnight hour? At midnight, Paul and Silas were kind of stretched out in stocks. I can just see them. In your imagination, can you? And Pauline kind of looks over there at Silas and says, Silas, are you awake? He's, oh, no, of course I'm awake. I can't, you know. He said, well, Silas, can you hit a G? (laughs) And he said, can I do what? He said, can you hit the key of G? He said, yeah, I think so. He said, well, why don't we just hit the key of G and sing a song or two here? I feel like singing a song. So Silas hits the key of G, and they start singing, Surely the presence of the Lord is in the key of G. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Now, what have they done? They've taken the circumstance and bended it to serve the purpose. And the purpose happened. The walls came tumbling down. And the Philippian jailer and everybody in his house got saved. And probably everybody, all the other prisoners and all their family got saved. For when Jesus being exalted becomes the absorbing purpose of your life, every circumstance will serve that purpose. He got shipwrecked on an island. When they swam to shore, kind of dried off, he must have said, well, fellas, since we're here, I'd like to give you this sermon I got on the way over here. Now, there is a manner in which that is done. Now, watch this. Back to verse 20 of of the first chapter of Philippians. The manner in which this is done is to be in whatever place. Now, follow me carefully. Look at this. He says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now would you underline that phrase even now as always be exalted in my body you know what Paul is saying he said from the first time I met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus I've had as my consuming obsession to exalt Jesus Christ and that obsession is even now my obsession Now, what is this even now? Let's identify that. Where is he now? He's in jail now. Now, if you look back up in verse 13 of the same chapter, look at this. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. You know what the praetorian guard was? The praetorian guard was Caesar's guard. It's, a, it's the elite group of, of, of guards, and they would come down in these... Paul must have been a terrible, terribly dangerous criminal. Because every six hours, they'd have four men come in shifts, and they would be chained to this prisoner, Caesar's guard, Praetorian guard. And Paul's saying to myself, Hey, man, every six hours, I get four new guys to preach to. Can, can you imagine what those four guys told the next four guys that came in on their shift. This guy isn't that crazy. I mean, this guy is a fanatic. Good luck, pal. For the next six hours, you're going to hear a sermon. Okay? So every six hours, four men were chained to the Apostle Paul. And you know what he did? He took that circumstance and preached the gospel to four men every six hours who had never heard it. 
You think it did any good? I want you to turn to the fourth chapter, verse 22. Look at this. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You know who this Caesar was? Caesar was Nero. And on this list of all the vile, vicious, aggressive, brutal Caesars in the Roman Empire, he was the worst. This guy was inconscionable. He was brutal. He even burned down the city of Rome to, to reflect suspicion from himself to these Christians. Nero was their Caesar. And you, can you imagine what his household was like? It must have been filled with people just like him. And from this household, they are saints. Where'd they come from? Let me suggest they came from Caesar's guards. For in that prison, the Apostle Paul preached to four new ones every six hours. And some of them got converted, and they went back to Caesar's household. And like the ripples dropped in a little pond, they begin to touch the lives of others. Now people in Caesar's household have come to know Jesus Christ. Why? Because in whatever place he found himself, he exalted Jesus in his body, not only in whatever place, but for whatever price. Now, watch, watch me, kids. Go back to verse 20. Let me show you something. He said, My absorbing purpose is that Christ shall be exalted, whether by life or by death. You know what he's saying? He's saying, My absorbing desire is that Jesus Christ be exalted in my life, whatever it takes. If it means that I'm going to die, so be it. I want Jesus to be exalted even if it kills me, and it did. Now, I was a kid. An evangelist came to my church, and he was a stirring preacher. I was touched. And this evangelist asked us in this service, he said, how many of you would be willing to die for Jesus? And we all lifted our hands. You know why? Because we knew we would probably never be asked to do that. We would never be asked that kind of thing. It's easy to you know, say, well, yeah, me, I will, when we know it'll never happen. And then he asked this question. Now watch this. He said, how many of you would be willing, how many of you will give your life to Jesus Christ even if it means living in such a way that the people who hate Jesus would wish you were dead? Now that's a different story. That's what you confront and I confront. Am I willing to give my life so to Jesus that He be exalted, even if it means humiliation or rejection or to be left out of the circle of important people or to be broke. Whatever it takes, the apostle said, I want whatever it takes. I, I don't matter what, to me what it takes. I want Jesus Christ to be exalted in my body. That's His all-consuming purpose. Not only, got two points, this is the second one. Not only would it impact our attitude, but watch this. I think it would give emphasis 
to the alternative. Now, I want you to go back to verse 20 with me. Look at this. He says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now watch. That word but is a strong word here. And he uses it to contrast here the two alternatives. You just have two alternatives. These are the alternatives, he says. Jesus Christ, exalted in your body, or you are put to shame. That's the only options you have. I'll be put to shame, or Jesus Christ will be exalted. I have to choose the, which alternative. The question is, what does he mean by being put to shame? It means three things. Take your choice. It may mean that this. It may mean that if Jesus is not being exalted in my life, it's because I'm ashamed of him. Can it be that we're ashamed of him? If we've been saved and never baptized, could it be that we're ashamed of him? If we are in a group of people and they're nailing Jesus and we do nothing about it, could it be that we're ashamed of Him? Is it possible to be ashamed of Him who did nothing but good and did nothing for you except save you? Could it be that you would ever be ashamed of Jesus who in naked shame died for you? Is that possible? Like the oft-told story of the boy who grew up in a, the son of a dirt farmer in North Carolina. His dad had nothing but a little old dirt farm. He didn't have a college, edu- he didn't have a degree, he didn't have an education at all. Just an ignorant dirt farmer. But when his boy was born, he said, my son's going to get an education. He's going to college. So he saved a little bit of his crop every year, his corn tobacco, and put it back so his son could go to college. And when it came time for college, that boy went away to school. Hundreds of miles away in the city, he went to the university. And because he was so bright and so self-sufficient growing up like that, he was just an instant hint old campus. One day the old farmer got in his old clunker, put on his best overalls and brogans. He had to go to the city. He thought, well, while I'm in the city, I'll just make a surprise visit to my son on the college campus. And so that day as he got out of his clunker and started walking across the campus, not knowing where to go to see his son, this boy came with some friends, city friends, boys and girls. And they were walking along and this old farmer shouted across the campus. He saw his son, and he called him by his pet name, a name that he had given him as a boy. He knew the name, and the boy knew the name, but the city boys and girls didn't. And so they said, who is that old ignorant old man coming across there? And that son looked and saw his dad. And he looked at his friends, and he looked at his dad, and he said, I don't know who the old idiot is. Let's go, in the stu- let's go in the student center. I'll buy us all a Coke. And so he turned with his friends to go into the student center. And the old man knew 
that the son recognized him. And the old man knew what it was all about. And the old man turned, got in his clunker, went back to North Carolina to his dirt farm to die of a broken heart. Is it possible that we could ever be ashamed of him? Or maybe it means that I'll be ashamed to stand before him. Would you be as embarrassed about Jesus and standing for Jesus and walking an aisle, standing here, going in that baptistry? If you, you were going to meet him face to face tomorrow, I say no. And the government received a $10 bill in an old crumpled envelope with an attached note. The handwriting was trembly. The paper was loose leaf, notebook paper. And the tone was desperate. And the man said, here's $10. I want to pay back with interest that blanket I stole from the army several years ago because I'm getting ready to meet God. It wasn't the only money they'd gotten back. For since they started in 1884 what is called the Conscience Fund in the U.S. government, they've received $3,500,000 of people sending in money to say, I know I've done something wrong and I want to be ready to meet God. And like my lay preacher friend often says, I'm not afraid to die, but I'm afraid I'd be ashamed to die. Or maybe it means that if He is not exalted in my body, He would be ashamed of me. I had a, in the early service, I, I, I want to talk to this young man who is here, a college student, because I know that when I said this in this part of the sermon, he was either jolted with conviction or intensely offended. You could see it in his face. Could it be that we are, if we're not exalting Jesus in our life, a disgrace to Him. For whatever else does that parable mean when Jesus said there was one man who had one talent and he buried it. And when the Master came and found he had buried his talent, he said, you wicked and slothful servant, now that may shock you, but there is a special kind of wickedness that a man would take the grace of God and not exalt Jesus in his life. What is the most conspicuous thing about you. Let's pray. Our Father, for your help and your hope and your word.
to fall on our heart now like lightning. We pray. And that whatever it takes, we'd be willing to pay the price for Jesus to be exalted. My prayer is this, not for anyone, but for His sake. Amen. Look here. Is there anybody here this morning who would like to step out and come publicly declaring their faith in Jesus Christ? Here is my life. I want Jesus to claim it, possess it, control it. Here is my life. I want to be saved. I've lived too long the way I've lived. I'm just sorry I haven't done this sooner. But I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. And I want Him to save me. Take away my sin from me. Give me eternal life. By simple faith that happens. By the tr- transferring of your trust to Jesus Christ it occurs. By repenting from your sin it happens. By faith toward the Lord Jesus it happens. Maybe you need to come this morning to place your life in the church or to rededicate yourself to the purpose, all-absorbing purpose of exalting Jesus wherever you are, whatever place, whatever the cost. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.